Hey, this is Howard Jacobson. Welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. My guest today, I'm delighted to be talking on the phone with Matt Fraser, the No Meat Athlete. Hello, Matt. Hey, Howard. How are you? Very well. So um, I have a, a copy of your book here. Uh, and I met you last year when you came to do a talk at a running store in uh, in Raleigh, near near where I live. Um, yep. So you start the book in a very exciting and agonizing way, talking about being around mile 22 of a qualifying race for your dream race, the Boston Marathon, and kind of looking like you're not going to make it. So let's let, let's go let's go back a little ways. Um, what made you want to run distance in the first place? Like way 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 back before you knew anything. Like what was the what was the spark of? I really I really want to run a marathon, and you know the Boston Marathon is the big one. Yeah, so that that came about kind of accidentally. I was uh, I had never been interested in fitness my whole life. Certainly not running. I hated running as a kid. And uh, in college, just as a lot of college guys do, I got into weight training and trying to bulk up, just starting to think about fitness. And then I started thinking about health and, you know, not just bulking up, but actually how do I become healthy. And uh, my roommates and I, who were all into weightlifting, decided we should lose some fat. And we said, okay, how do you lose fat? Well, you probably go run a lot. And uh, one of us said, okay, let's do a half marathon. And none of us were runners at all. He said, let's do a half marathon. And then we were sort of competitive and, like, you know, we're like, yeah, yeah, we can do that, no problem. And then it was someone else said, well, how about we do a full marathon? So before long, we were doing that. And, and honestly, we didn't know anything about running. So we had, we had we were ready to sign up for a race, but didn't even know the name of a race to sign up for. So, of course, we <laughs> the first thing we came up with was Boston, uh, as because it's the most famous marathon in the world, I think. So we, we looked it up, realized you had to qualify, and then it was like this challenge was issue. It's like, okay, we have to actually qualify to get into this race, so let's go do that first and then get into Boston. So it didn't turn out quite so smoothly as that, um, but but I ran that first one. Didn't come even close to qualifying. I think I was an hour and forty minutes too slow. Uh, but really grabbed onto it then, and I was like, some, I just this thing. It just felt like I had to do this. I had to find a way to get to Boston somehow. And uh, I didn't didn't really want to become a runner. It wasn't that. I just felt like this huge challenge was there and this really exciting thing. So I said, I'm going to try to do it. And it took a really long time to to make any progress towards it. But I. I finally did start making some progress after a few years of battling injuries. Mm. And you talk, I think you talked about that uh, when I saw you live, is this idea of, of life can be so much richer if you see it as a series of challenges like like th- that you choose, not a, that are just sort of thrown upon you. Right, uh, right. Yeah, I think that's true, and I don't, I don't know that it's true for everyone, but I know that I've found my life to be much richer and, and more exciting and just more meaningful when when I'm kind of going after something, and when I, in the space between that, when I after I accomplished you know whatever that first marathon, um, or and even after qualifying for Boston, I've, I've kind of hit sort of these lower points in my life where where it's like when that when that thing is missing that is really kind of pulling me forward. That's that's when uh, when I'm, I'm not you know really fulfilled. So I don't know that that's that's the healthiest approach for everyone, or that it's the right thing. But I know for me that that has made so much difference when I have a big goal and when I don't. So let's talk about the the idea of a big goal. So the the difference between success and failure your first time trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon was was almost an entire marathon. 
right? Like someone could have run most most of a marathon in the, the difference between where you needed to be and where you were. What made you think I'm gonna? That, that's a that's a closable gap. Like I think if that had been me, I'd have been like, okay, maybe I'll try like crocheting or something. Like clearly, clearly the running was a mistake. What made you right. think that you could close that gap? That's a good question, and I I don't have an answer uh, that you know it, you know is the only reason or the exact reason why I thought that. Um, I, I really tend to believe now that that it, the bigger the goal, the more exciting. I mean, the bigger the goal, the harder the goal, the more exciting it is. So I think that going after a really big goal like that, um, I think I, I think I, I was. I had I was better off setting that goal that said I'm going to qualify for Boston by taking an hour and 40 minutes off my time than if I had said I want to come back and run a second marathon and say just break four hours or something take take 50 minutes off my marathon still a decent amount of time to take off um, but I mean obstacles are going to come up no matter what you're, if you're if you have something that's worth setting a goal about where it's not just like go take out the trash because that's easy you don't need a goal for that but something where you are you're in one place and the outcome you want is in another place and you have to get there. Uh, going through some work and some obstacles, those obstacles are going to happen. And if it's a goal that is really exciting to you, then I think you're going to power through them. And if it's a goal that's, like, not that exciting but is sort of nice, then you're not going to really stick with it all that long. So I don't I don't know if that's, you know, I didn't really know that back then. So I can't say that that's why I was confident setting a goal like that. But in hindsight, I, I think that is the reason that it worked out, is that it was so big. I think it just it kind of really energized me. And, I had tons of injury problems in the next four years trying to just to run a second marathon. And I think if I if I just had, say, a four-hour goal and not qualify for Boston, then I think in those four years I would have kind of been shaken off the trail and said, that, that's enough of that. I'm going to go start crocheting, crocheting or whatever. So so you got serious about it. And from from listening to you speak and reading your book, I know that you're you're fairly obsessive about scholarship around like what's the best way to do this how can i you know how can i get my stride right so you were following what i imagine is like the best practices from running runner's world and talking to coaches and you were making improvements but you were getting injured all the time yeah i was so when i came for that first marathon i i discovered about halfway through the training that i had developed first shin splints and then an actual stress fracture in my shin so, you know, that, and that was that, that's actually a reason, an answer to the previous question is I felt like I hadn't really trained the way that I could. So I, I felt like there was a lot of improvement still to be made just by showing up to the start line, you know, not injured and, 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 and having completed the training program exactly the correct way. I, I did enough to get the race done. That's, that's I mean, because I got it done. But that made a big difference. And that, that, by the way, was when I ran a second marathon and did do it without injury, uh, that's when I got down to a little bit under four hours. So I took a lot of that chunk of time off right then. Still had another 50 minutes to go or something. But, uh, you know, so like I, in those four years between those two marathons, I, I just kind of kept trying to find something that worked. Like I I read r- one running book and I would start that training program and I would get injured a month into the training. And I'd say, okay, that didn't work, but I like this and this element, so I'm going to keep that. And then, Start with a new program and, and something else, and, and use use this new approach. And I kind of just kept piecing together the stuff that felt like it was getting me a little bit of progress, until finally I sort of kind of knew like how my worked and really learned a lot about myself and about running because like, just starting from zero, I didn't have any knowledge at first. And 
you know, finally piece together something that would let me run a marathon without getting hurt. And then once I achieved that, then it was it was you know still a difficult thing to do, but but much relatively much faster after that. It only took me I think four or five marathons after that to get to Boston. Mm. And, and give us a picture of like your time commitment. Was this like your full time gig, or did you have a job? Like, no, I I was uh, so I started off in undergrad when I did that first marathon. Then I started working regular full time jobs uh, after college. I worked a couple of them because I didn't really find one that I liked, and then uh, went back to grad school studying applied math actually, which has nothing at all to do with what I'm doing now or with money. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean I I was. I had the same kind of constraints that anybody else did. I, I was doing this like any other marathoner. Um, not and you know, my own as I mentioned, I had those injury issues, so I couldn't put in sixty miles a week of running. I, I mean, I my mileage was, was usually between thirty and fifty miles per week, and that that doesn't take all that long. You know, a forty-five minute run, maybe three times a week, and then a long run on the weekend, maybe another kind of half halfway long run somewhere else in the week. Um, nothing, nothing really that crazy though. So at at some point, with the injuries and with with looking for ways to make yourself um, faster and slimmer, you came across this idea of plant-based nutrition. Um, it, when I was looking to do long-distance running, and this was maybe 10 years ago, the the guy that I kind of glommed onto as an expert was Phil Mathetone, um, who but who's very much not a plant-based guy like you know certainly eat healthy but lots of lots of dairy certain types of raw dairy um you know fish uh, uh free range meat how did you stumble upon um plant based eating as a solution was it did you find it within the running community or was it something else that you kind of took from somewhere else and cobbled together in in in, the, in that fashion you know, it was it was more the latter, but it actually wasn't that I I didn't turn to this diet as a solution to to the running issue and, and to getting to Boston. Um, it really was was an ethical thing that and it happened to come at about the same time when my race times began to plateau. So I I got myself I had three ten was my marathon goal to qualify for Boston, and I had gotten to about a little bit over three twenty, uh, but felt that I had really kind of stalled out at that point. I was still making a little bit of progress, but not much, and, and I felt an insurmountable, um, you know, gap for me to, to cross. And at the same time, I, I felt this ethical reason. I just I just stopped feeling right about eating animals. I mean, I didn't. I don't have a reason. I had gotten some dogs, and I kind of started thinking about animals in that way more and, and just, you know, realized that it was not that different to, to kill and eat a pig as it was a dog. I mean, just kind of cultural norms make it right or wrong. Um, and I just felt like I, I didn't want to do that anymore. So there was a lot of, of hesitation on my part. I thought, if I do this, then I'm going to, that's giving up on calories and protein and basically giving up on the, the Boston goal. Because I didn't know that you could, you could be a marathoner and, or anything beyond that even uh, without eating meat. So I, I finally got to the point because of the frustration. And I thought, okay, my current trajectory of trying to qualify for Boston is not going to get me there. Like for the first time, I felt like, this goal might not actually happen as as this current situation is. So I said, you know, I don't really have that much to lose by trying out this plant-based diet that, that feels right to me. I'm just going to do it. And uh, I had actually gone to a Tony Robbins event, you know, the, the motivational speaker guy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of his stuff. And I'd gone to his event, 
And on the last day of it was that he talked a lot about diet. And he doesn't advocate a plant-based diet, but he does advocate one that is basically a vegan diet plus a little bit of fish. I mean, you know, very much entirely plant-based except for this little bit of fish a few times a week. So I was inspired by that, and I said, okay, I'm, if at least this will give me some long... I, you know, I came to believe that a diet like that or a plant-based diet could give me long-term health benefits, uh, if not in the short term. I didn't really know what would happen in the short term, but I said, I'm just going to give it a try, see what happens, and uh, and then, you know, if the Boston thing works out because of this, fine. If it doesn't work out, then I, you know, it probably wouldn't have happened anyway. I was kind of at that sort of mindset. So uh, I did it, and, and then it just, the next six months were like the best six months of training I'd ever had. So I, I learned a lot during that time. Brendan Brazier was a was a big influence on, on my thinking about food and, and what I learned about nutrition during that phase. He wrote the book called Thrive, uh, which is only book back then. And that was a great one. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, that was it. And it just, like, it got really easy after that. I, I still had to work really hard and harder than ever, but I didn't get injured that summer. And about six months after I made this diet change, I, I took those last ten minutes off my marathon and, and got myself into Boston. It's such a delicious irony in a way that, <laughs> the, you know, the, the giving up on your goal, because the way you talked about it, it was like, well, I'm, I'm not going to make it anyway, so I might as well, I have less to lose by following my ethical convictions. It was almost yeah. like that, that act of giving up was actually the door after you had tried everything else. It was, and it, it wasn't a total give up. I, I still had Boston on my mind. I mean, when I started, because I started my blog at the same time, and I think in the very first post, I said, I want to qualify for Boston still, and this is the next thing I'm trying, basically. And it happened to fit with my with my beliefs about how I should eat. Um, so it wasn't giving up. But it was sort of saying, like, what's, what has worked all this time is no longer working. I'm not getting any faster now. So, you know, I just, you know, now it becomes worth it to take more risks, basically. So I, I took a bigger risk, and it ended up working out really well. Because mm-hmm. I, I was... Uh... You know, reading the acknowledgments and noticing that you know, your, your first four people you thank, Tony Robbins, but also Seth Godin, uh, Leo Babuta, and, and Tim Ferriss. And mm-hmm. you know, Leo is fairly zen, but uh, yeah. you know, Tim and Seth are very much like you know, chase your dreams, full of focus, and it's it's almost like you this this little detour really opened up a a whole world. It must it must have been kind of humbling at a certain point to to realize Yeah, I mean go ahead. It it did and yet but I don't you know, I don't think uh that that the Zen approach is necessarily um you know incompatible with, with one of lots and lots of focus on a particular task. I mean Leo of Zenhabits.com or dot net, I'm sorry. Uh you know, he, he's, he's gone from, he made a lot of changes in his life, and he himself is, is a marathoner and ultra-marathoner and vegan and, you know, got out of debt, did all these things that required a tremendous amount of focus. And his thing has, has been for a long time was about focus, a lot of focus on one particular goal. And that's, that's really what I was doing with that. He, he now has, is experimenting with a have-no-goals philosophy, which I think is sort of what you're referring to of, uh, you know, when you say being Zen. But... uh yeah, I mean it is. It's interesting. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think they're necessarily incompatible. The idea of of being meditative and mindful and zen-like, and then, and also and having a, a really strong goal that you're focusing on. I think yeah. having a ton of things, a ton of big goals that you're going after is sort of tough to do in a, in a zen sort of mindset. But having just one thing that really matters to you, and that's your that's your thing, 
uh, I think I think they go together pretty well. I I agree absolutely. There's uh, I guess I'm thinking about you know there, there's ways to follow these guys and not really hear the totality of their message. You know, like, you know, like I, I was, a, and I'm thinking about myself, like I was a big into Tony Robbins in the late 90s. And I have a journal where I started doing his 30-day program. And, yeah, personal power. Yeah. And mm-hmm. there's, you know, as I look back, there's a lot of value in it. And I was hearing only half of it. And, uh-huh. and, and I think that's true of a lot of people. Like I've, I was walking with a friend of mine at that point who, who introduced me to Tony Robbins, and we see, like, this homeless guy sitting on a bench, and my friend's like, oh, that guy needs to learn how to get into state. He says, like, he needs to know how to get into state. Like, you know, like, <laughs> being right. powerful. Like, that's his problem. He does, if he can, you know, <laughs> right. And, you know, argue, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe that was the only thing. But, <laughs> right. you know, like Seth Godin, whom I followed for – for a long time has been tremendously valuable. He's, he writes a lot about, you know, taking action, about being a linchpin, about making yourself indispensable, about being standing out. He also wrote a book called The Dip about knowing when to quit. <laughs> yep, absolutely. You know, so, so I appreciate, the, you know, this, this, uh, this lineup of, of, uh, of luminaries whom you, you credit um, as practicing what they preach. But, and the, the nuanced way in which you you hear them and incorporate what they're talking about. Right, that is interesting, and I, I you know, I do love their stuff, and I, I like as much as possible to work it into to know me athlete stuff. I'm always shocked at how few people know, you know, just even in the online space who read my blog um, and are, are, I guess, you know, online savvy enough to subscribe to a blog and read a blog, um, you know, who don't know who. Any of those four people are. Like, I mean, certain, most people know probably who one or two of them are, but I'm always shocked that it's not just universal that people know each one of these persons. So I'd love to just incorporate their ideas and try to share what they are teaching, or at least, you know, as you mentioned, kind of the aspects of it that, that fit in with what I'm trying to do and the topics that I'm trying to write about. Right. So you, uh, you went plant-based. Um, once when when you decided so that you're going to become vegetarian and then vegan, at yep. that point there were a bunch of people who had been doing this successfully that you didn't know about, right? I guess Dave Scott and Scott Jurek and Brendan Brazier. How did you discover this, you know, this underground of people who already knew what you were coming to understand that that um, eating plants could improve athletic performance? Right, and so it's it's easy to forget that that is an underground. I'm glad you used that word because, like, now that I'm immersed in this, and, and maybe some people listening to this are too, it seems entirely obvious. It's like, okay, Scott Jurek was, was the best ultramarathoner in the world for a decade, and he ate 100% vegan, so, like, why would there be any doubt? But that stuff, it, that was not reaching the mainstream at all, and I think I think it is more now. I'm not totally unbiased because I'm, I'm kind of uh, so involved in it that, of course, I, I see their influence on people. But, uh, you know, I, like I said, I didn't have a clue that you could make this type of diet work for anything like that. And that's why I started the blog, because when I looked for information, I said, I'm going to make this diet change, because mostly because of, you know, ethical reasons, and I want to make it work with a marathon training, then how, how what, what do I do? How do I find out? And when I looked on the Internet, this was 2009, so not all that long ago, but when I looked around, there was almost nothing that was that was 
useful information online about this. It was it was a few things that were like sites that looked like they were built in 1995 and like had the you know, the left sidebar full of blue links and, like, it's just not very user-friendly. Or it was really preachy and it was written by someone who was clearly out to spread ethical vegetarianism or veganism. Um, you know, whether or not the science that they were talking about was actually true or not, that didn't seem to be a big concern. It was just, like, you know, saying how great the diet was. So that that was one of the big reasons I was inspired to start the site. I thought, I'll, I'll do this, document my own experiment with this, and hopefully learn a lot of information and be able to share that information in a way that is more user-friendly, is sort of fun and welcoming, uh, hopefully somewhat scientific and not not totally, you know, just like on board and promoting veganism at the expense of, of any science or actual thought. Um, and then, so as I did that, it was very quick that I started to discover all these people because for whatever reason, the community kind of built up around my blog and it was successful and I just met tons of people, and, and soon Brendan Razor's publisher, I think, uh, wanted to send a book for me to review, and they sent Thrive. And I had never heard of the guy when I when I checked it out, but uh, it, it made sense. And then I started looking for him and finding that he had done all these other interviews on the web and that all these other athletes were out there who had done the same thing. And it was an underground. But, uh, but you know, it just it kind of happened in that little, for me, at least kind of a grassroots way. People told me about it. I looked it up and, and found, you know, one thing led to another, and, and then... Um, and in the past five years, really since then, uh, it seems to me that a lot more has, has come up. And this, the whole idea of plant-based athletes uh, has become a thing, not not an exception anymore, but something that people are, some athletes, a lot of athletes are turning to precisely because of what it can do for the recovery, aside from any ethical thing at all. Yeah, I was just in, in Austin at a conference where uh, James Wilkes and Joseph Pace um, un- unveiled the, the teaser for their film, uh, The Game Changers, uh-huh. um, you know, about specifically about vegan athletes. There's, you know, there's something about athletes that that is really it's, it's so anomalous in our culture with with plant-based nutrition, with veganism, with with even sort of sensitivity and caring. Yeah. You know, so so it, it kind of makes good headlines, and it, right. it it tends to prove the point in an extreme way. You know, especially the the question that every plant eater gets of, about protein. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so where did um, where did you learn what to eat? So, you know, if, if you're going to go vegan for ethical reasons, you could easily live on, you know, tofurkey and uh, vegan mac and cheese. Like, where where did you first get your information about what was going to be both an ethically coherent diet and one that was at least not going to hurt your chances of, of uh, right. qualifying for Boston? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I had, as you mentioned before, I, I had read a lot of stuff before I had even thought about being vegetarian or vegan, um, just about, about general athletic performance and nutrition. And one book that was particularly helpful for me was Chris Carmichael's book. It's called uh, Food for Fitness, Eat Right to Train Right. And he was Lance Armstrong's coach. Um, and his diet, I think he recommends a 65% carbohydrate diet, something like 13% or 12% protein and the rest fat. And that diet happens to be really, really, um, I guess, I don't know, adaptable or, or, you know, it works very well with the vegan diet. Um, and it just, you know, not it's not very hard to get that amount of protein on a plant-based diet because you can get that, like whole wheat pasta is, 15% protein. So you can eat foods that are 
generally have been thought of as carbohydrate foods and eat those, and that will work for, for a general endurance athlete's diet. So that was the first thing. That, that made me think, once I kind of put that together, I said, okay, this diet is not really that weird for, for sports. There's, yes, there's missing the protein source of meat, but this, you know, the, an endurance athlete diet by someone as trusted as Chris Carmichael is, is not, doesn't have to be super high in protein or anything like that. So that, that helped a lot. I also started reading uh, Michael Pollan, who writes a lot about food, not necessarily vegetarian or vegan food. But I got the message there, really for the first time, that it was all about whole foods. It was it was eat whole natural foods, eat them in the state that they exist in, in nature or as close as possible. And uh, I guess his message is, is eat food, mostly plants, not too much. And so right. very, very simple rules. Eat food, of course, means don't eat stuff that, that is high-tech that comes, you know, in, in plastic wrappers and boxes and everything else. And that's, that, I mean, that's 90% of what to eat. There's there's not that much more to think about. Uh, Born to Run, another really good book. The guy in there, one of the one of the coaches, has this old sort of uh, old-school coaching advice, which is eat like a poor person. And his advice there is basically, you know, eat, eat beans and rice and things that you would get from the bulk section of a grocery store, not any of this expensive packaged stuff. That advice isn't really so uh, valid these days because, you know, as, as it's often said, McDonald's and things like that offer some of the most most calories per dollar of any food source. So it's not, and of course that's how a lot of poor people now eat. But, uh, you know, the idea, it, it, it was sort of simple that I grasped on too, was eat whole foods and eat, eat things that are pretty close to how they are in nature. And for the most part, if you're doing that, I mean, you can think about protein, carbohydrate, fat numbers, and keep an eye on it a little bit, but... You know, I don't I don't keep track of anything like that other than every now and then I look at what a typical day's diet is and make sure that I'm kind of in a range where I want to be. But I, I think you could almost ignore that. If you're eating whole foods, I think you almost can't really go wrong with, with those ratios. All right. And that sounds like the same way you think about the, the, tra- the technical aspects of training for a race, which is you take in a lot of information, but then you're looking for just sort of a, a rule of thumb that makes sense. Like I remember a bunch of a bunch of people at the talk that you gave at the running store were asking really specific questions. I'm not a competitive runner, uh, so I didn't really understand where they were coming from, but I understood your answers. And like if I decided to go and, be, and start training for a marathon, I could have done it based on your answers. Is that kind of uh-huh. how you see yourself as, as like, you know, the hopper at the top, all these facts come in, and then you come out with sort of principles that, that are just trustworthy? <laughs> Yeah, that is part of what I try to do, and it wasn't intentional. But but with being a blogger and just being someone who like takes in a lot of information and tries to put it then into a useful thousand word article that someone could actually take and use and get some good results from, uh, that's certainly something I try to do. You mentioned Tim Ferriss a few minutes ago, and his he does the eighty twenty principle. He certainly didn't invent it. The Pareto principle of of what what twenty percent of the information will get me eighty percent of the results. And for most people, especially for what I'm doing, where I'm writing to a broad audience, not necessarily elite athletes by any means, and I'm I'm certainly no elite athlete. I mean, qualifying for Boston is is great, but uh, that's still an hour slower than the elite male marathoners are are winning their races in. So, I I feel like you don't need most people who just want to start running, just do a marathon, get faster at the marathon, for example. They don't need to read a, a huge book about running form. I mean, the books, Chi Running, um, Pose Method. There's a bunch of others in the barefoot running movement. I mean, a lot of these things, they're they're fun, and you can you can really get into one if you want. But they all have 
three or four principles that are at the core of them and that are shared by all of them. And I feel like if you just take those four principles and don't really worry about the rest of the stuff, for the most part, you'll be fine. Take those four and then it, the other stuff will fall into place or just be natural idiosyncrasy maybe of that sort of individual to the runner. Uh, again, that, I think that's that's why what you what you mentioned in the talk kind of happened because I you know I kind of chunked maybe all that information into these four keys that that really matter and, and make the most difference. Right. I remember after after the talk, I went home because I was you know jogging in the mornings and you got me to increase my cadence. I think to to one eighty. Yep. Yep. And that's um, one of those four keys that, that is crucial. And the problem with it was I could not find any music I liked. At 180. There are only <laughs> right. Spotify stations dedicated to to 180 cadence runners, and it was just one horrible song after another. Yeah, that's. that's I mean, when I did it, I only found one song that I actually did like. But mostly, what I did was just go on a treadmill, and I don't like going on treadmills. So I just stared at a clock and took three steps per second for 20 minutes at a time, and did this, you know, three or four times a week for a few weeks, and eventually it just kind of started to feel natural. So when did the uh... The idea for, I, I don't know whether I say for the book or for a career, like that this could this could be your, you know, your thing. Uh, when, when did that start to coalesce? I mean, I would be lying if I said that it didn't cross my mind as soon as I started it. I, I Ever since college and before college, I had wanted to be an entrepreneur and do something other than the typical nine to five job. It just, I just couldn't get excited about that. And I thought I want to do my own thing, be my own boss. So I was constantly looking for things to, to do. And after the Tony Robbins event, when I decided to go vegetarian and I started looking for information to do this, it was like, wow, there's, as I mentioned before, there's an opportunity here to make something that, that fills a, a space that, you know, needs to be filled right now. So I did not ever expect it to get to the point where it was. Uh, and I didn't expect to do it via a blog. I thought maybe what I would be doing would be share this experience for a while, share the experiment, uh, build an audience through the blog, and then launch some sort of community or something site and sell T-shirts and just have a little fun side project that, that might make money. I mean, as an entrepreneur type idea, didn't even think about a book or anything like that. Uh, so, you know, from the beginning it was there, and I think my experience with it was, was kind of rare in that, it, it, I never went through that period of starting a blog where it was like just crickets and, and you felt like you were writing to nobody. There, there was definitely a little bit in the early days where a few days where it felt kind of like that, but there wasn't the big dip for me to get through, like the Seth Godin dip. It was just kind of from the beginning. It just there was this clear upward trend in people reading it, and there was no moment where it was like, okay, this is this is going to be a sustainable thing or, or going to be a much bigger thing. It never had a tipping point moment where all of a sudden there was avalanches of traffic. But uh, it just kept building up and up and, and pretty got to the point eventually where I said, okay, I could stop grad school now and do this. And uh, thankfully, I don't know, I wasn't too thrilled with what I was doing in grad school, so I decided to just give it a try, and, and uh, it's worked out since then. Cool. So let's, if we could, I'd love to talk to you about the entrepreneurial angle for a little bit because okay. you know, I've, I've been an entrepreneur since about 2001, and not in the health space, not in the plant-based space. Um, but when I when I entered this world, my thought was, well, this is so much more fun than other stuff that I'm doing. I obviously want to make a living here. I don't want to, you know, just have this be a hobby. And so I started talking to people, figure, you know, do my research, talk to people who are in the field. So I talked to a bunch of them, and I discovered almost no one was making a living. Like even the top people 
in the field are doctors who have practices or psychologists who have separate practices or, you know, they have some other job and they, and they put out this incredible output of valuable information, but it's all on the side. And I start getting really discouraged, like, is there no market here? And you have, in, you in have what, figured what out. In particular field? Are you talking about the health field or the plant-based field? Plant-based field. Mm-hmm. Right. And you figured out how to, how to be an entrepreneur. It, it, it seems like you've, you've questioned some of the assumptions that the people that I was talking to were making. They, they, were, they were quite discouraging. And then, of course, I, you know, I look around and I see people like you know, Lindsay Nixon, Happy Herbivore, with really robust mm-hmm. businesses. And then I see you coming up and, and just growing something very strategically. What, what, what advice would you have for someone who's, you know, in the plant-based world or, you know, that they're, they've felt the personal transformation, they feel a desire for whatever reason to, to share it with the world, but they've got their day job and they don't know how to think about, um, you know, making their passion their, their career as well. What would you say to someone like that? Well, first, um, this isn't maybe this isn't tactical business advice for how to how to get started while you have another job. But just one kind of overarching thing for anyone doing something related to a plant-based diet or anything where there's where there's this kind of ethical side to it, and therefore this built-in opposition to it, as well as sort of a built-in community of people who want to see it succeed and want to spread it for the sake of spreading the message, even if what you're doing isn't that great, um, just because they want to share the the whole plant-based message in general. <laughs> I mean, I was lucky not to have been in that world. I was so new to this diet. All I knew of it was that when I had thought about it before, because I had thought about it a few times about being becoming vegetarian, like when I was in uh, earlier in grad school, and even in undergrad, I had tried it just a little bit. And I had been so turned off by the by the preachy aspect. I, I'm someone who's, who's very much like not into high pressure stuff, or like I, I never wanted to do any kind of in-person sales, and it just seemed like that would be just, so I, I would just hate that situation, trying to convince someone to buy something and knowing them, maybe making them feel like they have to buy it, providing this discomfort. Um, so I, I never wanted to be one of those people who was spreading the plant-based message in that way, and that's what kept me away from this diet for so long. I thought, if I do that, I have to kind of become one of those people, and I didn't <laughs> want that. So I think because I was so like allergic to that or just, just scared of becoming that, I really, really stayed away as much as possible from ever saying that that you should do. My message was never, you should do this. It was, here's how I'm doing this. Here's what I'm doing to making it work. So if you're interested in it, then here are a bunch of tools that are working for me, and they can probably help you as well. It was never about convincing someone to try to do this. And I think that's where a lot of people go wrong with this. Um, right away, that the instinct to spread this message, because it has been so meaningful for them or helpful for them, that takes over and they want to just become evangelists for it. And I think you really have to fight that urge as much as possible, uh, especially in the beginning because you just, so many people will put their guard up immediately if they sense that they are being preached to by someone who, you know, has, has drank the Kool-Aid. So I did not want to go down that road. I was very, very careful pretty much from the beginning not to have that attitude ever. Um, so that that's one thing. It just being aware that, that the method you want to spread as, a, as someone in the plant-based world especially, uh, that it's a message that is, is still very foreign to most people and, and is one that is you know, actively opposed by a lot of people and a lot of forces. So you have to be careful with how you are, are positioning yourself and how you're spreading it. Um, not, not to say that you shouldn't become a passionate advocate for it. 
at all, because I think there is a, certainly a place for that. But in my case, being as traditionally as passive as possible and as low pressure and low key as possible, I think that's what made the whole thing succeed. It was like this. It was this kind of new. I, I hope a breath breath of fresh air for people who who were expected when they found a fight called no meat athlete that it would just be all this all this you know propaganda type stuff. And in fact, it was it was the opposite. It was just like, hey, this kind of works for me. You may not do it, or maybe if you're just a little bit curious, here's here's a tip. Uh, I, I think that that attitude was and still is the reason that the site had succeeded. Um, as for as for like a more I guess practical approach to someone who is working a job and, and wants to do something else, first is is know that I mean the internet is incredible, as you know. It's like what, what it has done, what the way it has revolutionized. Everything. I mean, it's, it's a printing press in every single home now. And you can start putting out a message into the world. Take half an hour a day or an hour a day if you can, you can manage it. Get up a little bit earlier, go to bed a little bit later, whatever it takes, and just start producing something that, that is hopefully of value, hopefully will help someone. Not, not just your diary about what you're doing, but something where you're taking something that you know about or are passionate about and you're sharing that information. Uh, Seth Godin writes so much now about how how we're all weird and how we, there are these these tribes of people and the mass market is, is now dead. It's dying. There used to be three TV channels. Now there are however infinite number almost when you consider all the internet channels of, of getting television. Um, it just, I mean, you, if you if you have a passion and you have some knowledge in it, or I didn't even have, I didn't have much knowledge in, in the vegetarian thing when I started mine. I just was committed to learning about it. So I was writing about it because it was something that was um, of interest to me. Do that and just keep doing it. And if you can get through that little dip, get to the spot where it is hard, people are going to find you. And and there there are enough small, tiny niches out there nowadays that it's, it's not about the mass market. It's not about reaching everyone. Pick something that's really, really narrow, that seems almost too narrow, so that when someone who perfectly fits who your target customer is or your target reader or your target listener or whatever it is, when, when the right person finds it, they say, yes, this is this is made for me. This is a perfect thing for me. So if my thing had been called athlete.com, that would have been way, way too broad. Of course, I couldn't have gotten that domain name either. But, you know, athlete, that, that's, there's, it's hard to write about athletes. It's too broad. No one who finds that is going to say, wow, this is just for me. But when you combine no meat with it, then suddenly it was this, this interesting intersection of two things that didn't quite seem to go together in a lot of people's minds. So... I really think by narrowing your audience rather than rather than going broad at first uh, is is one of the biggest keys. Just start small and, and trust that there are people there who are like you, interested in the same thing, and who and who will find your thing and say this is perfect for me. Just kind of keep that person in mind as you're starting it. Hmm. That's great advice, and and it, it it sounds like you you were very clear about from from you're coming from a very humble place. And not not in terms of like you didn't think you were any good, but in terms of realistically saying, here's my journey. You can come on this journey with me. You weren't trying to be an expert from day one. You were you were leading in a very non-threatening way. Like, hey, gee whiz, come let's 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 see where this goes. And as you said, right. you weren't you weren't doing hard hard salesmanship. I mean, you know, and I don't know that that like I don't know that I would give that advice to everyone, but the advice that I would generalize from that is, like, figure out who you are and be it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I was going to say the same thing, that, like, this is not to say you shouldn't take a really strong 
leadership position or position yourself as an expert. But I, I do think with the transparency of the internet now, uh, you can't you can't get away with taking something for very long. A lot of people find ways to game stuff and make themselves look like experts. But if if you're acting like an expert when you're not, it's going to be found out pretty soon. So I think I think there's a difference between pretending to be an expert and kind of having a little bit of guts to instead of saying, well, in my opinion, I think that this is the case, but there might be some cases where I'm wrong. And, you know, trying to defend against every possible criticism from the very beginning before that criticism even comes up. Um, I think that that takes a certain amount of skill, and that's a good thing is to, to be willing to say, here's here is my approach to this, and and like like here is my advice. But if you're trying to do that and trying to pretend that you're someone you're not, pretending you're an expert, I think that's that's a huge mistake. People will see through it immediately, uh, and if not immediately, then it won't take long before you are found out as a fraud. So yeah, I mean, know who you are, and then be completely honest and transparent about that. There's there's not another way now, which is a good thing. That you, you can't gain that sort of thing anymore. Right. So, so I've, I've seen from following your Facebook posts that No Meat Athlete is becoming a movement. <laughs> um, right? And, I, and I'm looking yeah. at the back page of the book, which is a photo montage of all these people wearing No Meat Athlete shirts. And mm-hmm. it, it suddenly occurred to me that you aren't the No Meat Athlete. That, that they <laughs> right. are. But like, exactly. You no, know, there's no, there's no branding. There's no little picture of you. There's, you know, there's the carrot running. Was that a conscious decision that this was, this could be a movement that didn't have to rely on you for its identity? Yes, that was from the very beginning. That was the intention. So it wasn't like a, it wasn't that I made a choice of this is going to be about everyone. It was just that was the first thing I thought of because as you said, I was kind of humble and I wasn't an expert at all and I was new to this. And I thought, I'm going to make something for the No Me Athlete. So, uh, that, that's what it was intended to be. And then I started being introduced at talks and things as the No Me Athlete. And I've, I've never once called myself that. I've always, a lot of times, I've tried to point out that I'm not that. Because uh, that's, that's not what it is. I was not the first one to, to be doing this. And, I, and there are people who are far better at, at both the nutrition side and the fitness side than I am. So, yeah, it, it's not supposed to be me. It's supposed to be about everyone else. And... uh and I think I think that's starting to happen. I think people are finally starting to get it. I, my my picture is on the cover of the book, and I kind of wish that it weren't because I think I think that does take away from that a little bit. But uh, yeah, but with the, with the I don't know. My, my daughter now, my daughter came to the talk and she said he's cute, so I, I don't think it hurts. <laughs> well, okay, I guess that's good. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. The running groups thing is is really that has been the most meaningful project I've done, far more than the book. Uh, is, is getting people to be connected under this banner of of no meat athlete and using it for, for for you know kind of the visibility and things like that. That the way that it can help advance this movement. Because I, I as much as I try to not uh, put it forward and, and like make it in my make my blog post about converting people, that's something that means a lot to me is, is spreading this message or at least at least reaching people like me who are interested in it. But but because of you know the way that culture is and the way that it's been brought up, assume that you cannot possibly do. You can't be a vegetarian and an athlete. So I want to reach that person who who was where I was seven years ago and said, "I'm a runner. I want to be vegetarian, but I don't think you can do that." Uh, I you know I want I wanted to spread that and and help that person. So that really the running groups are doing that or, or will do that. I think far better than I can because they're they're right in people's cities and they're they're it's just it's just a group of no meat athletes, which is great. And I think I don't think I need to be uh, I need to be a part of it even. I, I think it can be something that that goes on without me if, if it had to. 
And, and you don't have to be the bottleneck either. Right, and that yeah, right. that has happened a lot. <laughs> that having having me involved as the main person sort of the bottleneck things for sure. So what is the, the what are the running groups to describe them for someone who might be interested? Uh, yes, yeah, so what they are so far, um, from what I know of them, only I, we started about we started seventy of them or so across the world. Really, I think there are about ten that are in non-U.S. cities and sixty that are in U.S. cities, and uh, groups ranging from as as few as three and to as large as about fifty people uh, that that will get together. And this past weekend, the first two groups, San Francisco and Memphis, actually went for runs, and so they you know go for a run once a week, and then after that, go to some kind of plant-based restaurant. I mean, basically, any it's like any running club. They they go do the hard part, which is the run, and then have the fun, which is go get a drink or get some food or whatever and hang out with friends. Uh, so it, it, that's what it is right now. It's just it's just running clubs that, that are for people who are specifically vegetarian or vegan or, and this is really important, just kind of curious about the whole thing. I uh, did not want these things to be like other vegan meetups that I've been to where there's, there's no hopefully preachy attitude or high-pressure thing here. It's just come have fun and, like, eat vegetarian or vegan food for a day. And if you have enough fun, then come back and do it again. And, and that, that's what they are right now. So I think, you know, I've probably been more controlling than I need to be in, in like how I'm trying to engineer these things. Um, I actually had a great opportunity a few weeks ago to actually go uh, work in, in Seth Gooden's office for a week with him. And he helped me a whole lot in thinking of how this thing should work out. And... uh that's that's kind of where it is. It's just like you know, trying to figure out what are the best practices and how we're going to make this thing work, and what what kind of procedures can we install now to make sure that we learn the best from each different city, and, and kind of keep learning that and using it again where it works. So it's very very like literally this weekend announced it was like okay start, uh, but uh, I don't know where it's going, but I, I I'm excited about it. Uh-huh. And it seems like it's with with some in, initial engineering and thought from you, the thing can really become self-replicating, self-learning. And it, it, it'll end up going in directions that you never would have thought of on your own. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the intention. And I'm I'm learning now that, that there are all kinds of questions you have to answer, like how much control do I have over the local T-shirts? If it's a different city, if in Denver they want to make their T-shirt look like this, is that okay? Can every group just do their own thing, or should they be some standardized thing so that when someone sees it, I know it's going to be up, you know, the quality standard that I would expect, and that it's going to match the brand. So lots of questions like that, and how much how much can you control that without stifling it? Uh, I, you know, it, it's it's new territory for me for sure, but but really exciting. I'm I'm loving dealing with these questions. Awesome. So I have one more question for you, and it might be a silly one, but I'm not positive about this. But there's a quote on the back of the book by Sean Astin, actor. Is he is he one of the guys from Lord of the Rings, one of the Hobbits? Yes. And I don't even know the name because I've never watched any of those movies. Uh, <laughs> so I've got to ask how, uh, you, how you got how you got him to give yeah. me a quote. I think he was he was either uh, Pippin or Merry. My, my daughter will know. I, I, it, was, it was some. Oh, it was like I don't know, Seamus. No, it wasn't Seamus. Some some weird name. Uh, it, it wasn't either one of those. It was some two part name. I don't know what it was. It was a bunch of some weird weird word. Anyway, um, I am a big fan of Rudy though. I love Rudy. And uh, cry every time I watch it still. But uh, he, I think, I, I, it was some sort of random thing. I think he, like, somehow his mom turned him on to the website, I think, and he was trying a vegetarian diet for a little while, so he, he put a tweet about it. 
And, oh, I know, when I actually saw it with him, it was because I saw that he had bought uh, the marathon training program. So I, you know, get a notification when somebody buys one. And I saw his name, and then, I don't know, I think I looked at the domain and made sure that it was actually him or something on his email address. And found out that he was into running, and he had this, he has this thing, I think it's called Run Third, and it has its own, you know, kind of meaningful running movement. I forget exactly what the, what the cause was. But it was an interesting and nice thing he was doing. So, you know, we just started kind of talking back and forth by Twitter, and, uh, and he was happy to, to write it. So I, I, I don't know him well or anything like that, but uh, I thought it was cool, cause I, especially because of Rudy. I, Rudy, like, encapsulates all that stuff we talked about with motivation and having a huge goal that people think is ridiculous and not giving up on it. So to have him write it, uh, I mean, I know he's not Rudy, and there is Rudy in the world that's not him. But uh, that, that was really cool for that reason for me. Uh, you're like the 99th person who's told me to see Rudy. I've never seen it. So. Oh, my gosh, you have to see it. Uh, I guess, yeah. All right, this might be the, this might be the tipping point. <laughs> you might you might find it extremely corny since you're not like 15 years old when you see it for the first time. Maybe you uh, maybe you have to be that. I don't know. I, I I cry in McDonald's commercials, you know. So okay, then you'll probably. Cry I, I think I'll be fine. <laughs> so Matt, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been an absolutely pleasurable experience to talk to you and and hear your thinking and. Uh, and and share your your spirit and your wisdom with my listeners. Sure, absolutely. This was this was fun for me too. It was a pleasure, and I'd love to talk about all all the things we talked about. So I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Well, be well. All right. You too. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye bye.